The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. Good morning, Don. Good to see you. And you brought a good guest with you, a person who we really enjoyed talking to last time. Philip Peterson is here, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Well, good to see you both. And yes, last uh, it was actually a quarter ago, believe it or not. I couldn't believe it. I, I went back and it was three months ago we, we last had Philip on the show. And I just want to kind of go back in the history. What what makes Philip, and again, I, you know, you're probably a little humble here, Philip, but I want to go through all the different accolades. Why, why you actually are qualified to kind of give the opinions you have because these are not off the cuff these are very data-driven opinions and that's what I love but I'll get to that in a second so first of all and I did not know this your uh, you, your history goes back to Hamilton as a Mac grad and uh, back in I guess that was a 94 graduate yeah graduated in 94 yeah and I uh, had to say I have to say it was a decade earlier for me in 85 uh, out of the same uh, bachelor uh, you know, commerce degree. And uh, what a great program, first of all. And, and you said the next generation is heading there too? Yeah, it was a little bit of nostalgia for me as, as uh, my son is off to university next year and he did all you know, the applications and, and on his own by, you know, no pressure on, on, on my side. Uh, but he decided to go to McMaster. Uh, he fell in love with the program, likes the campus, likes everything about it. Um, and so that was his choice. So yeah, the next generation is headed to McMaster through the commerce program. Awesome. And it is a fantastic program. But sometimes when stuff is in your own backyard, you, you, you don't think it as being as great as it is, but it is one of the best in the world. So it is, it's absolutely a top five school in Canada. I think recognized for a number of different uh, programs there. It's medical school is one, but it's business program is another one. And, and uh, it's changed a lot. I'll say Don, since you and I have been there in terms of the program. <laughs> yeah, um, ab- absolutely. There's electricity now there, gentlemen. So that'll be a exactly. lot different for the younger ones. Yeah. And, and we're not using slide rules anymore. They have these things called computers and it's all right. pretty, uh, it's all pretty fancy. Yes. And uh, you went from there. We both took different paths. I went on to the kind of looking after the clients and, and, and direct personal financial planning. But you went to a more of an investment side, which is a great little you know, history here of went to Jan Honk, uh, Hancock Retirement Plan Services, um, looked from everything from managing a pension fund to uh, strategic planning and, and dealing with brokers. So you've seen pretty much all sides of the business, right, Peter? Right, Philip? Yeah, I have. I've, I've worked in the U.S. Um, well, it was based out of Toronto, but all the business was in the U.S. managing the uh, defined contribution pension uh, platform for John Hancock and our clients down there, uh, which was the due diligence of all the underlying managers, um, assisting with asset allocation and so on. From there, worked on the institutional side in Canada. So working with large pension plans and consultants in Canada. Uh, and then transitioned to what we would call the retail side or working with individual advisors and their clients um, over the last, oh, and that would be 15 years. So when it comes to, you know, what, how, how would I qualify myself for this? I think I've got the 10,000 hours, you know, to, yeah. to almost somewhat master 
uh, a, uh, a role which is very difficult to master in terms of yeah, how do you forecast and, and uh, I won't say predict the markets, but uh, identify the trends emerging in the marketplace. Yeah, that's a great way of uh, saying it, because there's uh, there's sometimes people often think, OK, why didn't you change my portfolio? Why didn't you see this coming? And, you know, from the greatest investors that we you know, I've read about from the Warren Buffett's the world and et cetera, none of them ever are timing markets to that extent. They, they have things that underlining reasons why they make changes, usually great businesses, as Warren Buffett often says, I like to buy great businesses um, and knowing they're going to weather through good and bad times. And, uh, but in your case, uh, I was just wondering, you know, I, again, it's the crystal ball of it. And then the strategic planning, what's the difference? Well, you know, it's interesting after the fact, when I look back at what happened over the last six months, it's very easy to identify why we, we saw a bear market in the U S and a correction in Canada. Um, but it's, it was difficult at the beginning of the year to say with any conviction, this is a reason to sell the market. And that's because of valuation. So there's, you know, when you look at the trends, you're trying to identify where the relative opportunity set is in front of us over the course of the next, I, I say 12 to 18 months. Um, short return term, it's very difficult to predict anything or forecast anything with any type of accuracy. Very long term, it's near impossible to predict anything with any type of accuracy. But I found you can you can spot the trends over, say, you know, 12 to 18 months and put yourself in a position to capture some of those trends. And that's the relative opportunity set. For example, at the beginning of the year, you know, it, to me, the data was suggesting that Canada was in a better position than the United States for a number of reasons. And so that warranted tilting a little bit more to Canada. Now, when we talk about this, it's never binary saying, well, just get out of the U.S. and go all Canada because the data leads you in a direction, but it can, it can, the markets can make fools of all of us and, and <laughs> change very, very quickly. So what you want to do is look at the trend and then slowly adjust towards that trend um, and you know, incrementally add value over time as opposed to trying to hit one out of the park. And I would suggest that, you know, the individual fund managers, whether they're running a Canadian fund, a U.S. fund, or even more what you're talking about is even an asset allocation fund where they're actually changing countries or adding more to one, uh, adding higher percentage to one country versus another country. They all are, are following some due diligence of saying, okay, this has more value or more opportunity than other areas. That, could you explain yeah, that a bit that's, more? That's exactly it. And the way that I look at it, I mean, every manager has their own process uh, and has their own experience in terms of identifying the markets. My view, I'm very, we call it top down, which means I look at you know, the geographies as opposed to the individual companies. We have other fantastic managers that will select the companies to own in, in portfolios uh, or select individual bonds to own in portfolios. What I do is I look at well, how much do we want to be in the United States versus Canada versus Europe versus you know, the emerging markets? How much do we want to own a fixed income versus equities? And so it comes down to three key things. Where are we in the economic cycle? Uh, and that is, you know, are we in expansion? Are we in growth mode? Are we peaking and starting to see growth slow? Are we headed towards a recession or recovery? You know, trying to identify where we are in the economic cycle and then marry that up to the earnings potential of various markets. So for example, the Canadian marketplace tends to be driven by commodities and the banks. 
So if we're in a strong commodity cycle, as we are now, you know that Canadian earnings are going to be attractive versus the U.S., where we're starting to see growth slow, consumption slow. And so earnings, while still positive, might not be quite as strong as Canada. Then you look at the third component, which is valuation. Okay, now what am I paying for those earnings in Canada versus the U.S.? Well, guess what? You're paying a lot less, about 30% less in Canada than you are in the U.S., And in the U.S., you're actually getting weaker earnings growth. So you put all that together and it says, okay, in this environment, historically, the cheaper geography with stronger earnings potential tends to outperform. And so that's how I look at it from the equity geographic perspective. Um, And then the way I, I identify the potential between, say, bonds and equities is what is your your uh, probability of upside versus downside, and where do you have you know, the better edge? And so right now, that would also be you know, equities over fixed income. Right. And, and again, what you just described is a perfect reason why you are now part of the iProfile Discretionary Fund. And basically what that is, is doing exactly what you just said, is having you know, set parameters around how much you would have in say US, Canadian, Europe, emerging markets and fixed income and allowing you to tilt them slightly. And uh, trust me, I'm very happy to have you on the team overseeing this for our clients because you know what, everything is down, but some things have more opportunity to bounce back than others. And that's really, I, I, I take it what you're gonna be adding to the table when you're, you know, as you are now involved with this product. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and very happy to be a part of, of uh, the process. Um, we have excellent uh, an excellent team that does the underlying due diligence of the managers that do the security selection. My job is to come in and say, okay, while I fully respect our U.S. equity managers that they love the U.S. right now, but relative to Canada, you're relative to Europe, do we still love the US or you know, should we be tilting in one way or the other? So it's all just incremental moves to add value over time. And I think one of the key ones is if we start to see a recessionary pressure uh, build in Canada, in the US, elsewhere, that will impact the markets. Well, can we tilt away from equities to protect us from some of the downside? Not all of it. And you can't perfectly predict these things. But if you can reduce some of the downside, then you put yourself in a much better position to capture the inevitable upside when the markets turn. And, and, and you know what, we're going to be talking about this in the next segment, but the recession word is definitely out and strong right now. Uh, it wasn't, uh, th- it was this week alone where, you know, Christia Freeland, big thing, how do we have to make adjustments to avoid a severe recession, very tension grabbing um, headlines. And it is, I, I happen to check and it is now four times since February, how many times it's Googled the word recession. It has been Google as much. And since uh, the pandemic in April 2020. So obviously it's a top of mind. It's sometimes the elephant in the room when we're talking to clients. And I do want to go through this. Before I do that, though, I, I love your podcast. So for those listeners out there, go to the ig.ca, um, go down to the living markets or go to your podcast provider. Um, look for the living market. And also, even on donfox.net, you can go under the uh, education tab on our, my own website. And I've got you right in there also. Uh, I, I love listening to every, it's only a five-minute segment. That's the best part about this. If you don't have time to listen and read and everything else, you get so much 
you know, it probably takes you an hour of to gather the information for that five minutes. I'm guessing, Phil. It's, you know, surprisingly, depending on how quickly I can record this, sometimes it does take longer than you would think. <laughs> so anyway, again, thanks so much for joining us today. I, I, we're going to go over, you know, what is it? Are we going to recession or are, are we not and why we aren't and possibly why we are. So I'm looking forward to the next segment. Planning your, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist from IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist at Investors Group. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to talk a little bit about recession and what it means this time around in this segment. Yes, we're not there yet, but just for the listeners, uh, the, you know, the definition of a recession is two negative quarters. And it, you know, really that, it sounds sometimes scarier than it really is. Uh, there is expansion and there's contraction. And we go through these cycles all the time. In fact, we had a recession, albeit a very small one, uh, pandemic recession, it was two negative quarters and things recovered and things got better quite quickly. In fact, anybody that did any changes to their portfolio generally hurt themselves by making any massive adjustments. Now, I've been listening to your podcast religiously here, Philip, and you have been speaking how this one doesn't seem in the next year that we didn't, you didn't see it going into a recession in our economy because of a lot of different reasons from employment, yield curve, um, even housing starts. And, you know, here we are halfway through the year and the word's getting louder and louder. And I'd like to hear your views on it now. Well, you know, Don, the recession discussion is is very, very um, well debated out there. And, and there seems <laughs> to be two camps. Uh, and it seems to be all over the place. You can't turn on BNN or CNBC without hearing pe- people talk about it. Now, my view is this. In general... I'm not seeing enough data to support a higher risk of recession over the course of the next 12 months. That's not saying that we won't get to one. I definitely think we will. And and let me reframe that. This is the U.S. that I'm talking about, because that is what's most important to our investment portfolios. We'll come to the, the whether or not there's a Canadian recession in just a second. But in the U.S., there are typically signs ahead of a recession. You need to see housing starts really slow down. Uh, we don't have that yet. We could get there, but, but we don't have that yet. You need to see unemployment start to move higher. Don't have that. You need to see the consumers really retrench. Well, we don't have that. Um, and you're right. Yes, technically, two quarters of negative GDP growth is the kind of accepted definition of recession, even though in the U.S., the National Bureau of Economic Research is the governing body that officially declares whether the U.S. went into a recession or not. Um, now, their view probably wouldn't support a recession near term because they think a recession or by their definition, it needs to be broad based. It needs to be in terms of industrial output. It needs to be in terms of unemployment, manufacturing, housing, everything. 
And so I don't think that if we did see a second quarter of negative GDP growth, first quarter was negative. That was because of exports. Um, and I'll explain that in a second. Um, but if we saw a second quarter of, of negative GDP growth, yes, you know, the it, out there, people will be talking about, well, there you go. The U.S. is in a recession. But is it really? And, and uh, that's my question. I think mathematically, sure, yes, you're in a mathematical recession. But are you in a real recession? Probably not, because unemployment in the U.S. is 3.6%. Jobs are plentiful. Uh, consumers are still healthy. What drove GDP growth negative in the first quarter is that U.S. exports were down. But imports were up 15%. Consumption was up 3%. Business investment was up 9 That doesn't seem like a recession to me. But they couldn't ship things. Why? Well, China was closed because of its zero COVID policy. Europe is struggling through weaker economic growth because of what's happening in Ukraine. So it's a global problem, not a U.S. problem. And I think if we saw the same results in the second quarter, well, you know, if you've been to the United States in a restaurant in an airport, there's no recession going on there right yeah. now. It's, it's still a strong economy. Canada, there is a little bit of uh, a little bit more risk here because housing is very important to the Canadian economy. It is when you consider construction and real estate, it's uh, close to 20% of our economy. So quite strong. Um, and if that slows down because of a rising interest rate environment, well, we could see a recession. So the probability in Canada might be a little bit higher, but that doesn't change what I think about the markets because the Canadian stock market is more global in nature. It would be impacted with a U.S. recession. A Canadian recession impacts us personally, but not to our portfolios. Got it. And you know what? <clears throat> it's interesting. They're tackling this, uh, you know, inflation has been the big thing. And, and so they're tackling inflation by raising interest rates. And then they're saying, okay, perhaps by raising these interest rates so quickly, that may trigger a recession because they're trying to curb spending, which again, is supply and demand, right? So that's the inflation. If, you know, if there's a lot less supply than demand for goods, then they can just keep raising the prices. Uh, you know, pretty simple economics. But I don't know how much of this inflation we actually get to control. You, you have the supply side of it, you, they're trying to increase interest rates, but yet the government is still spending money in a deficit spending area. So on one hand, they're saying, okay, we're raising interest rates to stop the consumers for spending, but we're still going to spend. We're going to increase the old age security by 10% for those over 75. We're going to reduce childcare costs. We're going to, all the benefits do go up by inflation, which is therefore actually driving inflation. Free dental care for families under you know 90,000. Like, there's a lot of money. And again, these are great programs, but doesn't it seem kind of odd that in one sense you go, you know, we're going to try to curb it by increasing interest rates. But the other hand, they're also spending a lot of money. So I'm not quite sure your take on this. Well, so my take is, is it might be a little bit different than, than uh, what some economists out there have been saying, what's been driving inflation. A lot of people believe it's supply chain. And yes, supply chain is part of it. Maybe it's increased demand because we saved more during COVID. Yes, that's part of it. But in my view, the biggest component to inflation has been the very, very massive expansion of the money supply. And th this was necessary. So what I mean by that is you know, the Bank of Canada literally, uh, alongside the federal government, injected, um, it was close to 30% more Canadian dollars in circulation during the COVID lockdowns to keep the economy going. It was necessary, absolutely, I agree with what they did, that it was right for the time, but perhaps what 
helped uh, drive the inflation to the levels that we have today, 7.7% in Canada, was leaving all that stimulus in the economy when we no longer needed it. And instead of, uh, in my view, instead of raising interest rates, what they should be doing is reducing the money supply by uh, reducing the Bank of Canada's balance sheet. And, and so that's, and I think the same in the United States. Um, that would, if, if the problem is too much money in circulation, we'll take some of that money out of circulation. You can do it via raising interest rates, but I think you could do it more effectively by uh, reducing their balance sheets that have exploded in the last couple of years. Um, and that will stem inflation. But to your point, in terms of what the federal government is doing, they're not reducing the money supply. The money supply is still growing and that is going to still contribute to some inflationary pressures, not as great as what we saw. I do think inflation is starting to come down, uh, but uh, rising interest rates perhaps lead to greater risk of an economic shock at some point down the road versus a contraction of uh, the balance sheet, which would remove some of that excess stimulus we no longer need. Can I ask a question, Phil? So why doesn't government do that? Why do they not just, okay, we're going to slow down the presses. We're going to pull physically money out of the economy as opposed to, to raising rates. Why don't they do that? Why is that not a viable option? Well, it's a good question. I think their first uh, tool in the toolbox that they reach for is uh, interest rates as opposed to uh, reducing liquidity out there. And perhaps it's because um, if you reduce liquidity too fast, then you can come into, it's called like a liquidity crunch where companies uh, that need capital can't access capital. In this case, you can still access it. You're just paying more for it. So it's it's kind of, you know, half, uh, half of one versus, you know, or was a six of one versus a, a half dozen of the other. Um, it's the same thing, uh, but it removes money out of the economy, raising interest rates at a much slower pace, you know, in meaning that it, it just slows activity versus literally removing money. So I think that's it. They haven't expressed why one versus the other. Um, so we can only guess at this point, but, and so then it would be up for debate. Uh, and, and perhaps that we don't know, you know, that one would be more effective than the other, but in my view, uh, I would be pulling money out of the system via reducing my balance sheet versus raising interest rates, which hurts everyone. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to give you an idea and going back to my economic days, it's that propensity to spend. So if, if all of a sudden we got a thousand dollars, there's a, it's about an, often it's around 90% chance, 90% of that money ends up going to be spent on something else. And then that person spends about 90% of that. And that person spends 90% of that. So that flows to the economy. So that 30% increase in the money supply, which again, as you said, was needed, massive amount of propensity to spend. So the, the multiplier effect on that is, is massive. So to try to pull back money would be the quick and simple, but not comfortable answer from a political standpoint. So raising interest rates might be, oh yeah, they just go up and everybody in the world's doing it. So it doesn't look so bad. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I agree. But again, looking at the client, whittle it right back down to, are the clients okay? What's going to like, you know, they, they sit there and they've watched the Toronto stock market drop by about 10% year to date. They've seen the U.S. markets drop between 15 to 30, depending on how close you were to technology and value you were. You've seen European markets drop and the safe haven bonds because of interest rates rising have, are down 15% year to date. So where can they go? You, and leave it in cash was earning nothing. So it's like, you know, where do we go from here? And, and so the clients are coming to us now and saying, you know, 
again, this is very short term. I, I understand we're looking at six months. So if you could paint the picture going forward, are the clients okay? That's really what's coming down from our level and the listeners out there right now. Certainly. So, so let me, I'm going to do two things. One, I want to reframe it in terms of, yes, the last six months have been really challenging when we look at our statements. Uh, and it just so happens that the market in the U.S. reached a peak uh, January 3rd. In Canada, we reached a peak March 29th, and, and we're down since then. But over the last five years, and I just ran this number this morning, last five years, the S&P 500 is up 60% in total not including dividends, uh, for an annualized return of, of about 9.8%, which is right in line with the historical average. So we've come through this bear market. And yet, if you look at it over the past five years, and a lot has happened in the last five years. So we've had three, uh, well, two bear markets and one deep correction, deep correction being 2018, you know, very contentious US election. We had a, a global pandemic that shut the uh, global economy down for, for weeks to months. Um, and yet, the S&P 500 through that still up 60%. Okay. Where are we going from here though? Well, there are a lot of signals that, that suggest the outlook for equity markets, um, some areas better than others, but is quite attractive over the course of the next 12 to 24 months. Meaning when we see corrections like this of, of 10% in Canada or 20% in the U S and you know, we, we are not in a recession, the outlook 12 months forward is, is very attractive. The average return off the bottom of a correction is 25% in the 12 months following. Um, so basically to interrupt there, yeah. what, a great, what a great time to invest is what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a general rule of thumb. If the markets are down 20% and you're sitting there saying, are we in a recession? No. The odds are in your favor to buy right. and we'll be up 12 months out. Now, that's, that's what happens 90% of the time. So there is a potential that we could still be down, but... I'm, I'm looking you know, two, three, five years out and saying this is an attractive buying opportunity, uh, in particular in some markets that are even cheaper than the US, Canada, Europe, Asia, you know, being these markets that are very attractive and are trading at a very healthy discount to US equities. Um, but US equities themselves are much cheaper than where we were a year, year and a quarter ago uh, from a valuation perspective. And companies are still making money. Right. And, you know, this isn't we haven't seen a, a um, you know, loss of capital like we did during, say, the tech wreck where companies were just folding and your capital was gone. That's not what we're we're in right now. I think the markets have gotten ahead of themselves last year, um, in part because, you know, again, we saw market inflation like we saw price inflation everywhere else. So did you can you really lose what you shouldn't have had in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the question. I look at it over the last five years. Yeah, since January, I'm not thrilled that my portfolio is down, but I'm still better off than I was, you know, two, three, five years ago. And the ones that I'm always most concerned about during any kind of downturns would be the retired client because they're pulling money on a monthly basis. You're doing the exact opposite of what you should be doing. You're actually selling while the market's down. And so I guess the the end of the day, you just have to have faith that you know, or not really you know don't maybe perhaps not make a large purchase and take a lot of money out at this time but you know make your monthly bills and at the same time if you have cash on the side it's often you better to utilize the cash rather than longer term investments would you agree i would agree and and this is where the concept of a cash wedge and done you would know this you know much yes. better than i but this is where you do have a cash uh, especially for retired individuals uh, on the side 
to utilize for your income needs as a, as a way of avoiding being a forced seller in a down market. Um, so that cash wedge at, at this point in time is, is very, very handy um, and protects portfolios. Yes. And so on to the next segment soon, but I want to go over the wealth effect, the real estate bubble, all sorts of stuff. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about that. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist at Investors Group. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905 972 7420. Going to talk about real estate this uh, segment. Lots of chatter around this. You know what? It, it has been the hottest topic in the last years because all of a sudden, everybody became real estate experts. You know, it's like it doesn't matter what it, it's when the markets are stock markets doing well, you can be a stock expert. You basically throw a dart and you weren't going to lose because every stock went up. And real estate's been kind of like that for the last few years, too, where you could buy any place. And it could be dilapidated and it was going up tremendously. In fact, real estate went up 53% in this area in two years. Um, you know, some other stats here, um, it's, it is, it's growing faster than anybody else in the, you know, the G7, and four times faster relatively to other countries. It's gone up 139% since 2005. Like this is almost, real estate's been acting like a, a you know, a, a penny stock. Like this is not normal. And finally, I know last time we were on the show, Philip, you were saying you've been wrong about real estate for so long, but it looks like you're looks like you're finally right on this one. Uh yeah. Yeah. Well, right at this point, <laughs> you've been wrong for, for too long. But uh well, I mean inevitably things have to come down. And what is triggering it here is is just interest rates. Interest rates have just shot up. Mortgage rates, anyone renewing is renewing at a much higher rate than the expiring mortgage, and that's really putting the squeeze. Anyone that is on a variable rate, uh, with the Bank of Canada having increased its overnight rate by 75 basis points in June, and expectations, uh, sorry, uh, that was 50 basis points in June, but expectations for 75 in July, um, that's going to be a uh, a real wake-up call to those speculators that are sitting on a variable rate mortgage um, as their costs are going up. So, uh, we're starting to see that in price. We're seeing that in, in sales. Uh, and I think we're only at the beginnings of it. And I think this is going to continue for some time yet. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. My own guess, if you will, back in January, I was speaking with my wife and I said, I would not be surprised to see real estate drop by 20%. Then recently I saw that the Halton area, their prices are down by 13%. What does this mean to the average homeowner? Nothing because they live in it. It doesn't affect anything. It does have a bit of a feeling, oh, I'm worth more. My net worth has gone up and there's a bit of a wealth effect. So people actually start spending more money just because their net worth is higher. And so that's also probably leading to inflationary pressures as well. 
just on spending money. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, real estate is, you know, it, it is a, a great asset to have, but it, it shouldn't be treated like a, you know, the way it has been. And you know what? Kind of like stocks, when you start to leverage yourself, you're also borrowing to invest. It gets very risky. And so if you see this tumble, personally, talking to clients, I actually got a little more nervous when you see people taking on million dollar mortgages at 1.8%. I'd rather them have $700,000 mortgages at 4% because the level of debt still means something. And I think people are start. we're only looking at the payment rather than the debt. And I think that's a dangerous way to do your personal financial planning. Anything you could add to that, Philip? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, we've seen that in, in the greater Toronto area where about 30% of the sales over the last number of years have come from speculators or investors. Uh, and how many articles, Don, have you and I seen in whatever magazine where you have a profile of, of some young individual that has a $5 million real estate portfolio and, right. and they're living large and they don't mention that that $5 million is levered up and they only have 200,000 of their own capital actually in there. You know, so this is the challenge that we see. And so when rates go up, all of a sudden that 5 million portfolio becomes much more expensive and you can't raise rents quite as fast. Um, so we get the squeeze on that, you know, uh, leverage can be a good thing, but can be also a very bad thing if you don't manage it to cash flow properly, uh, whether that be in leverage in real estate or leverage in the stock market. So uh, investors that have uh, made it look so easy in real estate over the last number of years, you know, now are realizing that there are difficulties uh, emerging. Yeah, and, and investing in general is not supposed to be this easy. It, you know, at the end of the day, whether it's stocks, all these experts, they become experts when the market is rising rapidly with doesn't matter what you buy. Again, those are very strong bull markets. And we saw that even the pandemic on the stay-at-home stocks, anything in the NASDAQ was going up dramatically, you know, 42 times earnings or greater, you know, it's things that just didn't make any economic sense. And you were finding that actually happening in the real estate market in Canada. So, but at the end of the day, do you think that the fact that you know, stock market's down, the real estate market's down, crypto is down, okay, gas prices are up, all these things um, are, are hurting the pocketbooks of Canadians, whether, um, whether they feel that way, and that's part of it, or you know, actually is hurting it with gas prices up. Do you feel that's already enough that may stop the inflationary trends? I think so. There are a number of forces coming out that we're seeing right now. Uh, supply chains are starting to ease. Uh, spending habits are changing. We're seeing substitution effects come in where people aren't spending on expensive things and they're, they're substituting, it, substituting these things for cheaper items. They're still spending the same dollar amount, but just in different ways. Um, so I don't think sentiment is impacting uh, the amount that Canadians or Americans are spending, but it is impacting what they're spending on. Um, and that in itself can be disinflationary. Yeah, and this is a... And this, at the end of the day, I, I suppose is all good because I always find that you know when when there's excesses, there's nothing like a little bit of economic downturn to get rid of the greed out of the out of the economy, get out of the speculators, and get down to what things are actually worth. And so that's just the yin and yang of what happens. And uh, at the end of the day, this could actually be a good thing. 
We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist at IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break and we return with our last segment in a few minutes. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist at Investors Group. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. A phrase you've mentioned a lot uh, on the show over the years, Don, is it different this time? Yes, and uh, I wouldn't actually say that. It's, I'm making this phrase up. It's uh, it's the clients we talk about, talk to on an everyday basis. That I think this time it's different, and normally it is not. And we, I've been doing this for 37 years since I graduated from from Mac, and there's always a different crisis du jour. And you know, right now we're we're having a lot of people actually say, you know what, this reminds me a lot of the 70s. Gas prices, oil prices are up, gas prices are up, inflation is going, is higher, uh, interest rates are up. Why is it not the 70s, Philip? My view why it's not the 70s is is a couple things. Um, let, first, let's talk about the economy, right? And, and people throwing stagflation out there and, you know, and the recession. Coming back to the recession, Don, I mean, you know, one thing I, I'd like to point out is that, you know, one, I, I'm not seeing enough evidence that we're headed there. If we are headed towards a recession, then this is going to be very different than what we've seen in that everyone is predicting it, everyone is expecting (laughs) it, and it's going to be the most telegraphed recession we've ever encountered, which just seems that impossible to me. If everyone is expecting it, we're probably not going to get it. Uh, So yes, we are seeing higher inflation. I can tell you exactly why. It's the money supply, in my view. It took, it took a lot of people uh, time to actually wake up to that, including the central banks that were saying, no, it's transitory. Don't worry. No, it's used cars. No, it's this. It's all that. And it's driven by the money supply. We did see the same thing happen in, in uh, the 70s, that money supply increased. But the other element that's missing today is demographics. If you think about it this way, I'm a big believer in demographics, and I think demographics drive economies. In the United States in the late 70s, think about you know, what was the dominant demographic then. It was the boomer, right? And, and uh, in, uh, it was about 1968, the population growth rate peaked, global population growth rate peaked. Um, so you fast forward to 1980, and you have the massive cohort in the U.S. getting married, having kids, buying homes, buying BMWs, you know, furnishing and all that all at once. And it was the, you know, the pig and the python, boom, bust and echo, whatever you want to call it. That helped drive inflation. We don't have that today. You know, population growth rates are much lower than where they were. Um, And the millennials, the kids of the boomers have spread out, you know, they get married later, they buy a home later, they have kids later, they have fewer kids. So we're not seeing the same kind of population boom. And so that's why I don't think this inflation is sustainable as it was from you know, 75 through to the early 80s. Inflation was steadily increasing. On the stagflation front, 
unemployment was much higher in the 70s than, than where it is today. In the US, it's 3.6%. In Canada, it's 5.2%, the lowest that we've had since the early 70s. If you could just describe stagflation in the definition. Sure. Stagflation is a, a period of higher inflation with stagnant economic growth. Now, we don't have stagnant economic growth. Uh, well, again, coming back to it, it's a more of a math problem than a real economic problem. We have decent economic growth in pockets of, of the economy across US and Canada uh, with higher inflation. But in my view, stagflation would, would have to include higher unemployment, and we don't have that. Great. And, you know, I look back at the 70s and uh, I'm aging myself a little bit here, but I remember backseat of my parents' car driving to Florida to visit my grandparents on March break and lineups on the gas stations. You had, uh, you know, the U.S., uh, depending on your license plate number, had alternating days. Uh, If you're out in Ontario, you could go anytime, no problem, because they did want our money. But uh, yeah, so you're saying it's extremely different now. And by the way, I love your passion for all this material. You really do bring it to life. And I I love that, Philip. So thanks so much. But you must be getting some of this passion from the likes of, you know, Warren Buffett or whoever. I'm not sure who, but uh, who would you say your mentor is? Well, you know, one, one gentleman that I've known for years and followed him for a number of years, uh, Mike Wilson down at Morgan Stanley in, in the United States. I think he's a great analyst. He's a great uh, strategist, and he's someone that I, I tend to follow on an ongoing basis. Um, but if I look back, you know, it comes down to to like like a Warren Buffett. Now, it, ironically, I'm, I'm more of the Austrian school of economics where I do believe in booms and busts um, as opposed to Keynes, you know, just keep stimulating your way out of everything. Uh, but as far as the investing uh, strategy goes, it is more Warren Buffett. Look at companies that generate profits. The market's going to get the price right or wrong. You know, the markets are never exactly fairly valued. They're always some function above or below. Over the long term, you get a lot closer to what is fair value. And that's what I tend to focus on. So last six months, to be honest, Don, I haven't looked at a statement since 1231 because I've known what's gone on. I just (laughs) shred them right away. um, Knowing that, you know, we're okay. It's okay. The economy is okay. Um, And, and the market will reflect that, you know, maybe not today, but over the next coming years, it'll fully reflect that. And at the end of the day, that's really what clients want to hear that we're okay Things are symptoms of a lot of different things happening. There's uncertainty in the world from Russia invasion to the high employ- high inflation, higher interest rates, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the base of our economy is doing quite well. And I think you've brought that to life here, Philip. And again, our clients will appreciate this dissertation of how you brought this together. So thank you again and hope to have you again in three more months to see what the third quarter goes between now and then. I look forward to it, and I hope we're pleasantly surprised. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox has been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist from IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. A fabulous show, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you for the hug as well. I think we all needed that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Scott.
Have a great week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.